1: Campsite Media.
0: Hello, can you hear me? Right. Okay. Hello. Hello. So, what do you want me to say? It. Oh, It's just um, hello.
2: Chameleon. Season four.
0: Scam likely. A production of
1: Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> Tell me about this call that you received.
2: The funny thing is, you know, on my phone, the caller ID showed me nine one one, and I pick it up. And the guys are like, okay, can you go out of your office and find some, some place where no one else is hearing you? So I started worrying a little bit.
1: This is a guy I'm going to call Dhruv. It's the fall of 2013. Dhruv is living in a mid-sized American city and he has a job in IT. He's in his late 30s. He walks out of his office building to the parking lot and gets into his car. Okay, he says, no one else is around. The person on the other end of the line says they're calling from the Department of Homeland Security. Dhruv's heart skips a beat. The caller says there's a problem with Dhruv's immigration paperwork. Unless Dhruv pays a penalty to the government, he's going to be arrested and deported.
2: So, of course, (laughs) when I heard, I was scared. So I said, okay, fine, it's fine, I'm ready to pay.
1: You can understand his panic. Dhruv and his wife had moved to the United States from India as students, hoping to build a better life. After graduating, they got work visas and started their careers. They planned to save enough money to buy a house, start a family, make America their home. Being deported would destroy that dream. For a moment, Dhruv wondered, is this really Homeland Security? But then the caller mentioned details that only an immigration official could have known, like the dates when Dhruv had most recently traveled to India. So Dhruv trusted the caller, and he was going to do what he said. The official said, you owe the government $500 to correct your immigration file. Then he started barking orders. He tells Dhruv, go buy a prepaid cash card at CVS. Dhruv drives to the nearest CVS, finds the card in an aisle close to the entrance, and pays at the register. $500. A lot of money for Dhruv. He's on the phone the whole time, and the official says, Good. Now read out the numbers from the back of the card. That was the equivalent of transferring all $500. Dhruv starts to relax. The hard part is over.
2: So I think he put me on hold around 10-15 minutes-ish. And then he came back and he said, Hey man, looks like your file is like, you know, not corrected. So it's definitely going to cost a lot more now.
1: Dhruv felt his heart sinking. But he had no choice but to agree to pay more. The immigration official gave him the address for a nearby Walmart where Dhruv bought more prepaid cards. At one point, he hung up and texted his wife to tell her he might not answer if she called.
2: Literally, he called me back and he said like, why did you text someone? I said, no, I just text my wife only. So he said, no, you're not allowed to call anyone, not allowed to text anyone until we are done.
1: Dhruv was already frightened. Now he was spooked. He felt this immigration official could see his every move. So, Dhruv followed orders. Over the next few hours, Dhruv drove from one store to another, buying more and more prepaid cards. If a store turned him away because of rules against selling prepaid cards above a certain limit, the official would give Dhruv addresses for new stores.
2: I did not drink water. I did not eat anything. Keep driving, I only stop or park my car. Either I'm going to the store I stopped once at the shell to to fill the gas. And that also he was literally saying ask keep asking every few minutes saying okay is it done is it done how much
1: more you you need. The official had bad news. It turned out Dhruv's case was even more complicated than he'd first thought. It was being referred to the FBI. A new government official took over the call. This guy yelled at Thruv and insulted him, intimidating him even more aggressively than the first guy. When Thruv went to another Walmart to buy even more money cards, the new official told him that a person asking for donations by the entrance was actually a government agent surveilling him. The man's words deepened Thruv's feeling of helplessness and loss of agency. It was as if he were in a trance completely under the control of this voice on the phone. The caller instructed him to buy a lighter and burn up all the
2: cards. So I did that actually, but a few of them I did, but then it's also, you know, <laughs> you can't do those kind of thing in the parking area as well. So I said, hey, I did it, but I ended I ended up putting it in my trunk.
1: Dhruv was dizzy and terrified, and more than anything else, exhausted. He couldn't go on. He told the official he
2: couldn't pay any more. So I don't care now. If you say, like, I'm illegal and you want me to depart right now, go ahead, do so. Because I don't have money. I can't do anything else anymore. So I'm done.
1: The caller finally let him go. When Thruv got home, he searched online and discovered, as he had begun to suspect, that he had fallen for a scam. But it wasn't just him. Something seemed off with his wife. And finally, she told him what it was. She had gotten a similar call that morning and done exactly what Thruve did, frantically driving from store to store, giving more and more money to the scammers. Thruve's nightmare had been twice as bad as he had thought. So that night, both of you didn't sleep? No. Were you just researching on Google what to do next? or
2: No, we were just pretending that we are sleeping. But we both couldn't get to sleep, not even a single minute.
1: And you were pretending because you didn't want to upset the other yes, person? Yes,
2: same for both of us. They had
1: lost $30,000. <laughs> From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cam Likely, the fourth season of Chameleon. I'm Udijit Paracharji. Hello.
2: Hello. You have to make an immediate payment. payment. The
0: minimum amount is $2,000. $2,000. $11,000. Oh my God. I mean, come on. Don't hang up the call. Just be on the line. Thank you.
1: Episode 1 Follow the Money. Every single one of you listening to this show has probably received calls from scammers like the ones that targeted Truth. Whether it's an offer to lower interest rates on your loans or a notification of fraudulent charges on your credit card bill or a warning about a fictitious legal case for which you now face arrest, the purpose of these calls is simple, to separate you from your money. I've played along and actually sat through more of these calls than the average person because of two reasons. The first is an abiding journalistic interest in scams and frauds and deceptions, which I've written extensively about over the years. The second reason is that I was born and raised in India, where most of these calls originate from. I've been curious about who these callers are, how they operate, and how it is that they can get away with stealing hundreds of millions of dollars every year. This is a story about those calls, how they shatter people's lives, how police are often helpless to stop them, and how the masterminds make it all work. It's a story about a small group of investigators who got to the bottom of it all. And it starts the way a lot of detective stories do. A woman walks in off the street to make a complaint at a police station. Only in this case, instead of a police station, it was the San Francisco Office of Homeland Security Investigations an agency within the Department of Homeland Security. It was January of 2013, and the woman who walked in spoke to the agent who happened to be on duty that day, a guy named Dave. She reported
3: that somebody had called her, claiming to be from uh, what she referred to as the American High Commission, which I've learned is um, what persons in India commonly call the U.S.
1: Embassy. The woman was an Indian immigrant, The person on the phone told her basically the same thing a scammer told Truve, that her legal status in the United States was in jeopardy because she had made serious errors in filling out her immigration paperwork when she last entered the country. To Dave, the woman making the complaint sounded smart and with it, a person with good judgment and common sense, but she told Dave she had panicked as the phone call went on.
3: She was kind of convinced that it was somebody from her embassy was calling her. Um, she was a graduate of Boston College. She was very smart, very articulate. But they read back her basically her resume to her. They knew everything about her. Her parents' names, where she lived. Um, they were very insulting with her. They were like, I, "I thought you were educated. How do you not? How do you not do this? How are you so stupid not to have had your immigration paperwork?" Sort of belittled her into sending them four thousand dollars via traditional Western Union wire.
1: Dave realized this would be challenging to investigate. The caller had used the name Kevin Marsh, which was obviously fake and worthless as a clue. The chances of finding the scammer were not great, and he knew complaints like this one were unlikely to get priority. But he felt sorry for the woman. She had lost a total of $4,300. It kind
3: of got under my skin that um, no one in particular from my agency, but just sort of in general. They just sort of throw up their hands, and like there's nothing you can do about this because it's in India or it's in China and we're not interested.
1: Dave doesn't like to hear no. He's high energy and impatient, the kind of guy who swears when his computer takes too long to boot up. He drinks at least two cans of Monster every day. He talks on the phone a lot, trying to get things done. Before coming to DHS, Dave was in the Army serving in the Middle East in the early 2000s.
3: The one thing that always assisted me from that is bringing in little things we call like the military decision-making process. Um, I take that into kind of everything I do. And it's like, I, I just need to know, you know, like my mission, task, and purpose to get going.
1: At DHS, Dave's job was investigating transnational crime of all kinds, from drug running to child trafficking. So this case of the woman who'd been scammed on the phone seemed pretty minor.
3: So I did the best I could. The money went to Delhi. I talked to Western Union. They said, yeah, it went there. Somebody in that name must have picked it up. At the time, they were using Skype. So I ran that to its logical conclusion. There's nothing else to do.
1: So that's where Dave was, stuck. He had traced the money to Delhi, India, where the scam call had likely originated from but an isolated case of fraud wasn't going to spark a major international investigation. Dave had a hunch that the call he had investigated was probably the tip of an iceberg. He just had no way to get under the water, at least not yet.
3: And then um, that, was, that was like right before I'd gone off to like uh, some training in Fort Benning um, and
1: I just kind of put it on the back burner. But Dave wasn't the only investigator following the trail of these calls. That's coming up after the break.
0: That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
1: At the same time Dave decided he couldn't make any headway with the case, another federal agent 2,000 miles away was beginning to look into similar complaints coming in from Indian immigrants who lived around Houston. These were Indians on H-1B work visas. And they said they were getting calls from what they believed to be the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, USCIS.
4: And in the course of these phone calls, they were essentially threatened with deportation and told that if they didn't pay certain fines to the callers, that ICE would come and and pick them up and send them back to India.
1: This is Chris. Back in the summer of 2013, when he started following up on these complaints, he was a special agent in the office of the Inspector General, at the Department of Homeland Security. So, he was in the same federal department as Dave, but a different division of it. Chris's office is an internal watchdog for the agency, and Chris's job was to investigate allegations of fraud, waste, and abuse within the department.
4: What was your initial hunch about who might be behind it? Our initial concern was that there was an employee. A DHS employee was using their access to various DHS databases to target individuals for extortion. So our primary concern at the outset was employee corruption.
1: Chris was born to be an investigator. Since childhood, he was fascinated by stories of heroism by firefighters and police officers. When the Department of Homeland Security was created after September 11, 2001, he applied right away. At the time, he was working as an archaeologist. He loved piecing a story together from shards of evidence that he managed to dig up. And in the summer of 2013, he found those skills were still essential at his new job. Because as he was looking into complaints from Indian immigrants who had been victimized by fraudulent calls, he hit an obstacle almost immediately. When he called up the victims to try to hear their story, most people just hung up.
4: It got very frustrating for us very early on because it, 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 was, it was truly difficult for us to do our jobs. When, when you're calling someone who's been victimized by a voice on the other end of the line saying, this is the Department of Homeland Security, and then I come and follow up with a phone call saying, this is the Department of Homeland Security, can you tell me your story? It's a tremendous waste of resources, uh, because these people were now terrified. They didn't trust anyone that came, that came across their phone.
1: When he was finally able to persuade them that he was legit, what he heard
4: disturbed him. These are people who were making money that was transformational and generational for their family. And when they lose everything, they're literally taking money out of their family's pocket that that could make the difference between having a meal and not having a meal, because these are people who are coming out of extreme poverty in some parts of India, and and it's a one-shot chance to come work in the United States. So um, that really got under my skin quite a bit.
1: It wasn't difficult to understand why these people were intimidated by the calls they were getting. Some had the 1-800 number for USCIS saved in their phones. It was a number they called routinely to get updates about their immigration process. So the calls from the extortionists literally showed up as USCIS. And the callers had so much information about their targets that the calls seemed genuine. For Chris, this was consistent with the theory that the calls were actually originating from inside USCIS. That some corrupt employees were involved, but Chris wasn't sure, so he started to dig.
4: Found it all right. <sighs> so this is uh, State Highway Six here. This is Sugarland. This is kind of the main, um, kind of the main road through Sugarland.
0: Yeah.
1: This- Last fall, I met up with Chris in Houston, and one of the things we did was go on a local tour of a scam. We started in the parking lot of a Kroger in Sugar Land, Texas, a Houston suburb. When Chris started his investigation, he quickly figured out how the stealing part of the scam worked. It was the same thing Dhruv and his wife experienced. The victim gets a threatening call that they owe money, and the caller tells them they need to pay by taking out cash from their bank, then driving to a place like a Walmart or a Kroger. we
4: would come in this way?
1: The victim stays on the phone with the caller when they enter the store, and then the caller instructs them, okay, go buy a prepaid debit card. Those cards are on a rack in the customer service area in the front of the store. You've probably walked by them thousands of times when you go to buy your milk and eggs.
4: This is what's called a stored value card. Stored value card means the customer, or excuse me, the victim, I should say, is coming in here and is actually taking cash to the customer service center. They can load however much cash this card can store.
1: There's a $500 limit for each card, but the caller has a way around that. He tells the victim to buy a
4: few, often three. So they're at the counter, they scan that, they say $500, they program it, now this card has the equivalent of $500 cash on it. The victim then takes those three $500 cards, they walk outside of the store, They're going to scratch off that money pack number on the back. And while still on the phone with the scammers, they're going to read that number to them.
1: At this point, the victim has been robbed. The money is gone. But Chris soon realized that the stealing part was only the beginning of the scam. What happened next was a long chain of money laundering designed to move the victim's cash farther and farther away from any place that was easy to trace. Chris figured that out by following the money. He found that as soon as the victim read off the numbers on their prepaid debit card, the caller, or an accomplice, transferred the victim's money onto another, different kind of card. A general-purpose reloadable, or a GPR card. The GPR cards the scammers were using were mostly produced by a company called Green Dot.
3: The name sure. of the government-certified bonds is green, like in color, green dot, Okay. green dot, money, pack.
1: So, what's special about green dot cards? Unlike prepaid debit cards, these have to be registered to an identity to be usable. The scammers used stolen identities from around the country. Another disguise. Chris knew the money didn't stay on the green dot cards for very long. He discovered they were being used to buy money orders. Individuals physically went into stores where money orders could be purchased using the green dot cards. And that's how Chris discovered the runners, the low-level foot soldiers of the scam. They were a window into the whole operation. While the victim is on the phone with the caller, the runner is sitting in a car, waiting. Next to him, tossed in a pile on the passenger seat maybe, is a stack of Green Dot cards. And just minutes after the victim has read off the number of the prepaid debit card to the caller, the runner gets a call or a text or a WhatsApp message from someone working with the caller.
4: Saying the last four digits on the front of this card or whatever the last four digits of this card are, they're gonna say four, five, six, seven, ready, go. And they're gonna tell you the amount.
1: The money from the victim's prepaid debit card has now been transferred onto some of the Green Dot cards the runner is holding. In the next step, the runner moves the money even further. He gets out of his car, which is probably in the parking lot of a place like a Kroger or a Walmart, and enters the store.
4: You're gonna walk up and say, I wanna buy a money order. Western Union, MoneyGram, RIA, whatever the the particular vendor is. And you're gonna say the amount that your handler just told you to buy. You're gonna swipe that card, you're gonna walk out with a money order. You're going to walk across the street to Chase Bank or next door to Bank of America, and you're going to deposit into the account that you've been given.
1: It was all a shell game. The same money moving further and further away from the victim. To recap, the victim is intimidated into buying prepaid cards, so they go buy them and read off the information to the caller. The caller moves the money onto a different kind of card, the green dot card. The runner has the green dot card, And because it's been registered to an identity, it can be used to buy a money order. After the runner does that, he deposits the money order into a bank account. From there, it can go almost anywhere.
4: So if you're the victim who just bought these money pack cards for $500 a piece, within 10, 15, 20 minutes maximum of you reading off the number on the back of that, it's gone and may already be deposited into a third-party bank account. And then when investigators like us come along and try to recreate that, it might be months before we are able to trace that transaction that happened in a matter of minutes.
1: By now, it was evident to Chris that this scheme wasn't the handiwork of corrupt employees within DHS. There was clearly some kind of organized criminal network behind the scam.
4: There's nothing more persuasive for stealing money than psychology. You know, a a gun is effective for robbing a bank, but, you know, if you want to make real money, you got to use the mind.
1: At this point, Dave, the DHS investigator, was back from training. He was sitting at his desk in San Francisco when he saw an intelligence report about what Chris had been working on scam callers who were pretending to be from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service.
3: I started looking at it, and I realized, like, this is, like, the verbatim script that they had told to this woman in January, only now they were using Green Dot money packs.
1: Those Green Dot cards Chris had uncovered, registered under Stolen Identities, and loaded up with money taken from victims. Dave just had the report. He didn't know anything about Chris. So he decided he'd follow up on it, start investigating himself. And he found one thing that was particularly interesting. When he looked at the phone numbers that were used to load stolen money onto the Green Dot cards, one number kept coming up. I would see seven one three seven
3: one three seven one three seven one three, and that was it. That number called into Green Dot more than 10,000 times in one year and transferred over $6 million onto 4,000 cards registered to 1,200 unique people. So I call that a clue. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
0: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No! You're listening to Communion from Campside Media.
1: Federal agents don't like to talk much. They usually refer journalists to their public affairs office or suggest going through legal documents. But documents, no matter how comprehensively written, rarely tell the whole story. I wanted to hear the story of this investigation from the agents who were in the thick of it. And so I kept knocking on doors until finally one door opened. I got a call saying, come to Houston, where Chris is based. We made an agreement with DHS and they said, if you don't use the last names of our agents, you're welcome to hear them talk about the case. We met in a nondescript office building next to a busy highway in the downtown area. The only way to know that we were on the premises of a federal agency was the presence of a refrigerator stocked with ciprofloxacin to be given to employees in case of an exposure to anthrax. We sat around a table snacking on donuts as Chris and Dave reminisced about the time they realized they might be investigating the same thing.
4: That person I spoke to had literally just received a telephone call from Dave um, or an email from Dave that same day. So yeah, that was the first question was, are you working with Dave on this? And
1: so was your first reaction like, damn, somebody else is on the case too?
4: No, it was actually, I was excited. <laughs> I was excited because I was like, good. Um, to hear that someone at an HSI office somewhere in the interior was was looking at this was great news.
1: So did you just hang up and get on the phone with Dave? or
4: Dave called me actually, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I got off the phone. I think I was I, like, I,
3: "Damn it, somebody else on the case."
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think I said, "I think I sent Dave an email, and Dave uh, Dave picked up the phone and called me, and was like, um, and immediately he was like, he was already looking at it, like um, you know, he was seeing a lot of bank accounts where um, the people that were receiving these were Indian nationals. They gelled quickly, maybe
1: because of their contrasting styles. Chris is quiet, more methodical in his approach. Dave is bursting with ideas and likes to cut to the chase. Chris is tolerant of protocol. Dave, he loses patience with it. Talking to each other, they realized more than before that they were on to something big. They also understood the challenge that lay ahead of them, tracing anonymous voices on the phone to their origin and discovering who was getting rich off of this whole thing. This was going to be complicated. Dave and Chris were motivated, but they wondered if they were naive to think they could pull it off. They came up with a name for themselves and the team they came to work with. Six guys who gave a shit. I mean, that was it. The guys who gave a shit. They kept hearing what they were up against. The scam was complicated. It was international. The scammers could change tactics faster than the investigators could uncover them. Some agents they worked with said, basically, why bother? Detractors said the victims of the scams were not without blame. After all,
4: they could have just hung up on these callers. We just, I guess, had a a, a different a different sort of outlook on on the importance of it and what it meant. And I think a lot of this comes down to we we were at similar places in our careers, you know, in terms of time away from the academy, in terms of um, experience level, in terms of what we had done up to that point. So we were maybe a little too young and too dumb to to know what we were getting into. Um, but we played off each other's energy a ton. You don't want to let those guys down. And it became at some point more about, you know, us versus them. Like, these guys are good, and they're calling everybody, and they're getting everybody, but we're better. So Chris and Dave got to work.
1: They wanted to figure out who the runners were. They started with CCTV footage from the stores where the runners were using Green Dot cards to buy money orders. It turned out it wasn't easy to identify them.
4: It's not NCIS where, you know, you're watching television and, you know, they were standing in a room and somebody says, pull that up on the screen, and they've got you yeah. your entire personal history. Oh, oh here's,
3: here's this guy. Oh, he has a bank account here, he graduated from here. Here's a, here's a cool mugshot of him in the Marine Corps nine years ago. Like, that's that doesn't
1: happen, right? There were other real-life practicalities, the kind of stuff that gets in the way of any investigation. If the request for video relating to a transaction was sent in more than 30 days after it had happened, stores were likely to have deleted the footage. Even when they found the right footage, it was often pretty unhelpful.
4: So it was frustrating. Um, you know, the quality of the images, you know, sometimes better than others, sometimes and there's just sometimes, a sometimes, you know, blob. they would
3: send you some random Person. Yeah. Like, why did you? What?
1: The thing that finally allowed Chris and Dave to put faces to names was that phone number with the 713 area code Dave had found, the one calling into Green Dot thousands of times. That number was an even bigger clue than Dave had imagined. Because it wasn't just calling Green Dot, it was also calling private cell phone numbers all over the U.S. Chris and Dave knew enough by now to understand that this number was likely being used out of a call center in India. It had to be Mission Control for this scam. And at least some of these numbers that Mission Control was calling, those were runners sitting in Kroger parking lots waiting to cash out Green Dot cards and buy money orders.
3: 99.5% of the calls went to Green Dot and then you would have a few outliers would call it. And then we realized that this phone is probably sitting in India, so they're calling the call center, and if there's a direct call back, this is this person in the call center coming back. So everybody that, any individuals that spoke to that
4: phone now just became target numbers. And as we started to pull up driver's licenses and passports and things like that, all of a sudden the people on our board had names.
1: This board, it was on a computer program the investigators were using. A colleague printed it out once and it looked kind of like the thing you've seen in probably a dozen cop movies, showing how a bunch of different bad guys were tied together.
3: It just looked like the, the mind of a maniac. And it, was, it, it literally looked like you just gave a three-year-old a crayon, and they just made 90,000 circles. But that was, the, that was the computer of making the connections from all these phone numbers.
1: The board was a start, but Chris and Dave knew it was far from a complete picture. And the little they had was still hazy. There were photos without names and names without photos, a jigsaw puzzle of identities.
4: So we kind of had this this thought process that there's a bunch of people that we can go and surveil and we can see what they're actually doing and how they're doing it. And they're in the Chicago area.
1: It was time to move beyond just following the money. It was time to chase the runners. That's next time on Scam Likely.
0: Coming up on Chameleon Season 4,
2: Scam Likely. He will be arrested and he will be behind the bars for five years. Okay, Chris? No, that's not okay. No. They were
0: yelling at me and saying, you have to pay this or we're gonna send the cops to you and I should have just blocked the number,
1: but I didn't know. So, I paid them.
2: No detective in one area could really... Get a handle on what was occurring. But if we were
4: able to do a single indictment of the entire conspiracy and organization all at once, maybe that would get the attention to shut this thing down.
3: Literally within like arm's reach of the front door was a stack of cash.
2: When you're contacted by someone who says he's working for a target, you have to be very careful.
3: I was anticipating for him to get out and come to my door. I may mean, have my gun out waiting to shoot him.
1: I mean, in India, finding an address, leave alone a person. Can be an adventure. The first reaction from our side was, What nonsense is this? Vicky, Vicky Bhardavaj. Where is he? We used to get calls every second. Yeah, it's a scam. If you want to work, then work, or you can leave. Why do you think that you've gotten caught up in this? I had a company,
2: and that company got into trouble.
1: So, were you ever in the US, Tilak?
2: I'm not comfortable in telling you that, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: Chameleon is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Scam Likely was produced and written by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, and me, Udijit Patacharji. Callie Hitchcock and Yiwen Lai Tremuyn were our associate producers. The show was fact-checked by Sarah Ivry. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional music by Samba Jean-Baptiste. Special thanks to Campside's operations team, Alea Papes and Doug Slavin. The executive producers at Campside are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriatis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff.